little bit selfish. Um, when I heard it was June Mission Month coming up, and I heard about the theme, Expecting the Unexpected, um, I immediately thought about this story. In fact, um, in my mind, um, the two best stories in the Bible uh, in terms of this theme of expect the unexpected, the one that Keon did last week um, about Jonah and the story that we've just heard. So I jumped in really quickly knowing that I was going to be preaching at 4.30 and at 9 and here. I jumped in and I grabbed it really quickly and I hope that um, by the end you'll have a chance to see why. Before we jump into the story itself, it's worthwhile um, saying something about Mark's gospel. Um, This is not just a side issue. I think understanding Mark and the kind of writer he is helps us to understand the book a bit better. Mark is is one of my favorite gospel writers, and if you're not aware, um, the whole Bible is about God and his son Jesus, Um, but there are four books that specifically write about Jesus' life, from his birth right up to his death and resurrection. And these four books are called the Gospel. And the four Gospels contain a lot of the same stories. In fact, the majority of the four Gospels have... Do you want me to use the other one? Okay, we'll do that. I'm just going to do a quick swap over. Test, test. Okay, good. Um, Four Gospels, 60% of them is kind of roughly the same, but... It's interesting to think, well, then what makes them a little bit different? And the two things I really love um, about Mark, first of all, he's a great storyteller. A lot of people say that back in the days when Mark wrote 2,000 years ago, the average person didn't read and they didn't have books for everyone to read. So it was really important that people could hear a story and remember it. And Mark tells these really short but very memorable stories by throwing lots of detail and that kind of thing. And so he's a great storyteller, and I, and I love a good storyteller. But it's more than just being a good storyteller. If we can just bring up our first slide. Mark um, seems to have really understood what Jesus was on about and the fact that Jesus never just did anything. He didn't just wake up in the morning and go, what can I do today? Well, I'll heal some people, and I'll teach some things, and I'll feed some people. Every last thing that Jesus did, he did for a reason. So, for example, we know from some of the Gospels that when he would heal a blind man, he also taught the people around him. And you who have blind eyes need to learn to open your eyes and see who I am. Everything that Jesus did, he did for a larger purpose. So in this particular story, we already know, by the time we get to chapter 5, that Jesus has driven out many demons. In fact, in the early chapters of Mark, he keeps on repeating things. You know, that Jesus drove out many demons. This was part of his ministry. He would go around healing and driving out demons and teaching the people. So when we get to chapter 5, why do we need this long, elaborate, detailed story about one guy who needed to have demons driven out? Is Mark just trying to be provocative here, or does this story have more to say? And it certainly is a story where he wants us to ask, what is this all about? So I'm going to just point out five things from this story that we need um, to take on board. And the first thing is what's up there on the screen. First of all, this is a crossing over story. This is a story where Jesus is expanding his mission territory. If you go right back to the end of chapter 4 of Mark in verse 35, we're told that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. 
Now, that's kind of a cryptic thing to say. Let's cross over. Let's go to the other side. But he doesn't say go to the other side of what. And that's because Mark knows that Jesus was saying more than let's cross this large body of water. Jesus was crossing over into Gentile territory. For those of you who may not know, most scholars agree that when we read the Gospels that Jesus spent most of his life inside of the borders of Israel. As a young child, we know he had to flee down into Egypt with his, with his family as a refugee for a while. But from what we can tell, in his adult years, he spent most of his time within the borders of Israel. But we know that his mission, by the time you get to the end of the Gospels, is to go into all the world and preach the Gospel. And this seems to be one of the very few times when scholars still debate whether Jesus physically crossed over the borders of Israel, which were not as defined then as they were now. This was all Roman Empire. And so whether he was physically crossing a border or whatever, we know that he was crossing over into Gentile territory. And we're told that he went into the region of the Gerasenes. We're told about, you know, a bunch of pigs and pig farmers. If you know anything about Jews and their diets, they're not pig raisers and they're not pig farmers, and at the end of the story we're told about the Decapolis, which even sounds Greco-Roman, doesn't it? I mean, it's the ten Greco-Roman cities where Jesus was. So Jesus, one of the few times we're told he was crossing over from Israelite territory into Gentile territory, and this is Jesus expanding his mission territory. We'll say more about this towards the end. The second thing about this story is that it's what we would call a substitution story, if we can just bring up our next slide. There's a whole bunch of details in this story that you think, again, is Mark just meaning to be provocative? Is he just trying to uh, kind of unnerve us and kind of, you know, poke at our senses a little bit? And if you think that anything in this story seems a little bit cringy to you, take my word for it, it's not nearly as cringy to us today is what it was to the people who heard it for the very first time. Keep in mind that Jesus is seen as a rabbi. He's a priest. He's a pastor. He's a holy man. And everything about this story shows Jesus walking into this minefield of spiritually unclean things. For those of you who remember when we went through books like Exodus and all of that, and we talked about how for the Jews to be physically clean was also a picture of your spiritual cleanness. When I was raised, people used to say, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, that is a very Jewish way of thinking. The way you showed yourself to be internally clean and spiritually clean was to work on your outward cleanliness. And that meant that there were all kinds of things that strict Jews would avoid. They would avoid contact with unclean animals, such as pigs. They would avoid going into Gentile territory where there were pagan and unholy people. They would avoid people who had been and had skin diseases and bleeding and open cuts. They avoided graveyards and tombstones and contact with the dead because all of these things to come into contact with them was to make you spiritually unclean. So what does Mark do to us? He says, here is a minefield. Not only does Jesus cross over, but here is a minefield of spiritual impurity. And rather than Jesus taking his disciples and tiptoeing through them and saying, be careful, he walks through and he detonates all of these dirty bombs. 
And what Jesus is trying to say is that he has come to be a substitute. A substitute is someone who takes the place of someone else. And what Mark is doing here is he's beginning to foreshadow something for us very important. When Jesus finds himself hanging on a cross for sins that he did not do, paying a penalty that he did not deserve. And when he cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is doing that so that he can pray to his father, forgive them, for they don't understand what they're doing. So what Mark understands is throughout Jesus' ministry, whenever he reached out and touched the leper, Jesus made himself unclean in the eyes of the Jews. Whenever Jesus reached out and touched the dead person, he made himself unclean in the eyes of the Jews. When he went among Samaritans or Gentiles and had contact with them, all of these things, Jesus was taking sin upon himself because the scriptures say God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. So this is a substitution story. It, it is showing us that in order for Jesus to become the friend of sinners and the savior of sinners, he was going to have to get his hands dirty. And he was not afraid to do that. The third thing is, is this is a, this is a, a judgment story. Um, in Luke's gospel, there's a time that Jesus sends his own disciples out with his authority a little bit like the Great Commission, but a little bit early on. He says, go out into all the towns and drive out demons and heal the sick. I will give you the authority and the power to do the things that I have been doing. And they come running back, and they're excited about the whole thing, but they say to Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name. And I always think that Jesus must have had a, a smile on his face when he says this, but he, he says back to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heavens. In other words, I just watched Satan just get booted out of heaven and just fall like a you know, streak of lightning down to the earth. In other words, God has given me authority to give to you to destroy Satan, to destroy evil, and destroy the domain of sin. And so when we get to this story, you know, it's really funny. A lot of people point out, and, and I've read a lot of scholars on this story, and they all point out that when people read the story, the big thing that they get upset about is the poor piggies, right? It's like, why does he do the thing with the pigs? It just seems so sad, all those pigs, you know, plunging over the side of a cliff and being drowned. And but Jesus is doing something incredible here. First of all, when we see these thousands of demons, and remember they're called a legion. Legion means thousands of soldiers. It's a military term. So here on the edge of the border of Jewish Gentile territory, as Jesus goes in to expand his missional territory, it's almost like symbolically Satan has said all troops to the front. He sent a legion of angels. And this one poor man seems to represent all of humanity who are under the power of Satan. No one can control them. 
No one could help. They even tried to chain him. No one could defeat this legion. And when we look at this poor man's self-destructive behavior, we just get in a single person a personification of what Satan has done to our world. Kept us enslaved in, in fear and in sin and in self-destructive behavior, which we still see all around the world today. And as these poor piggies go, you know, plunging over to the side, you get some sense that they were all inside of this one man. The power that they had over this man and the power that Satan has over humanity is gripping. But you notice that as you read about what their response to to Jesus. Let me just go from verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus said, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, For we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go in them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, a legion, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and we're drowned. And what we're getting this picture of is, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. As Jesus says to the impure spirits, that's what the demons were called, go into the impure, unclean animals. And as these unclean spirits plunge themselves from the mouth of the graveyard above down into the abyss below, Mark is giving us a story. Satan is finished. The demons cower at him. What you have just seen is what will become of Satan and his angels in the end. And I always sort of think, if you're like some people, my wife hates the story about the poor piggies, you know, but these poor piggies whose life was destined for a dinner table, there's never been a more noble use of a pig to, to be the vessel that makes us see the demise of Satan as you're watching them plunge over from the graveyard above into the abyss below. We see this physical picture of the fall and the demise of Satan. So it's a story of Christ's judgment and authority over evil. And then it's a story about different responses. And for me, when we start getting into, um, you know, the, the reason why I wanted us to see this story, the expect the unexpected theme, I just am intrigued by the responses. Remember, we're told that when the people saw this man sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, they were afraid. Now let's think about where we've been. You live in a town, and you know that there in the graveyard near the town is a madman, demon-possessed, who runs around and cries out day and night 
inside of the tombs. He is full of cuts. No one can bind him. No one can overpower him. I mean, this is the stuff of horror stories, right? When we were kids, we told stories about, did you hear that there's this horrible man that wanders around the town? And all that? But this guy was for real. But when the townspeople came and saw this man subdued and dressed in his right mind, and they saw the power of Jesus, they were afraid, and they begged him, leave. But what's the response of the ex-demon-possessed man? He came to Jesus, and he begged him, let me go with you. See, when the story begins, you might imagine that it's going to go this way. There was this horrible, monstrous, demon-possessed man who terrified a whole town. And Jesus came and he looked at the man and he said, Get out of here, you horrible man. I want nothing to do with you. Leave these people alone. And he left the region and the people all came to Jesus and they said, Thank you, Jesus. You have saved us from the horrible, monstrous man. Instead, seeing the power of Jesus because People loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They begged Jesus, go. But the person that you least expect in the story is the one that Jesus saves and has mercy on him. And this man begs Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to be one of your disciples. But then we get another surprise. Because Jesus says, no, I have something else for you to do. So the fifth point, I've looked at it, I'm not trying to say this flippantly, but I actually think that what we get in this story is the very first commissioning of a Gentile missionary in the entire scriptures. I mean, we saw it in the Old Testament with Jonah last week when he goes and he's told to go to the Ninevites, but in the New Testament, up until this point, Jesus has spent all of his time in Jewish territory. He sent his disciples out amongst the Jewish towns. Now Jesus has crossed over simply so that he can meet this one man and deal with this one man. Now he's going to get in the boat and go back across to the other side. And the man wants to go with him, and he says, No, stay here and go and tell everyone how much Jesus has done for you, which he does, and all the people are amazed. I just want to bring this into modern-day territory so we can actually understand what has actually happened here. You know, imagine this guy, um, you know, now lives in the 21st century. He works in an office. One of his colleagues goes and says, hey, let's go out and get to know each other a little bit better. And so the guy, you know, well, the colleague says to this man, so tell me a little bit about yourself. And he says, did you ever hear those stories about that guy who lived in the Sydney graveyards, ran around cutting himself and screaming out, demon-possessed, raving mad, no one could do anything with him? The guy goes, yeah, everyone heard about him. Whatever happened to that guy? And he went, that's me. That was me. He goes, no, come on, don't be silly. You're sitting here and clothed and in your right mind and perfectly sane. He goes, I can prove it. Everyone who knows me, they can prove this story. That man was me. What do you ask? What in the world happened? What, what medication did they put you on? Who is your psychologist? 
how were, you know, who was your counselor? How were you helped? And he said, this man by the name of Jesus came and healed me. He drove evil from me. He released me from bondage of evil and death. That's me. That's my story. And you can imagine the guy going, wow. And all of the people who heard about him were amazed. Jesus says, go throughout the Decapolis, throughout Gentile territory, long before Peter did this, long before Paul did this, long before John did this, he says to this ex-demoniac maniac, you're my first Gentile missionary. Go and tell everyone what I have done for you. Expect the unexpected. I just want to finish with this challenge. You know, what, what do we do with a story like this? And I was reminded, if we can just have our final slide, of a book I read some time ago. And I love the title, and I've heard uh, Pastor Bill Hybel speak about this. Just walk across the room. What can you do? Just walk across the room. To some of you, God will call you to cross over the seas and go into another nation or whatever. But for some of you, the challenge is just walk across the room. And Pastor Hybels tells you this story, which I'm going to quickly summarize as your challenge. He said he got this title because he was sitting there at a, at a dinner, and there was a guy there who, who kept on looking over at him, and he said, before dinner's over with and before you leave, I, I need to tell you a bit about my story. And so afterward, Bill Hybels sat down with this man, and he said, here's what happened to me. Here's how I became a Christian. He said, uh, it took place in the United States. This man was African-American. He said, I, like a lot of African-American people, I grew up in a, in a church, but I was always a second-class citizen. And my family, they were always second-class citizens. We were never really asked to be involved in anything. We didn't like the way we were treated. And one by one, we all left the church, and I vowed to never go back. He said, when I got to university, there was one group of people that actually accepted me, and they were the black Muslims. And I changed my name and I became a Muslim, and I was committed to my faith. After university, I went on and I got a job in the business world, and he said, I just found myself in my particular area of the US as a black man, often just standing off to the side of a room while all of the little white huddles you know, were all around me. And he said, I was at this event, and the canapes were being passed around, and we were standing in the hotel lobby, and all of these little white huddles, and I just found myself standing alone. My little name tag, and just kind of looking at the ceiling, wondering when I could go home again, and thinking, this is my whole life. And he said, but I kept on noticing from one of these little white huddles, this man just kept on looking across at me, and looking across at me, and I was thinking, what does he want? And he said, I saw the man go and say to his group, I'm sorry, and he excused himself, and he walked across the room, and he came over, and he put out his hand, and he introduced himself to me. And first, this black man said, I wondered, what's he selling? I'm a businessman. He kind of said, look, you can look at my name tag. It's you know, clearly a Muslim name. This is not going to go well for me. I don't know what you want. He said, no, I just wanted to come over and say hi. And so he said, you know, you say that you're a Muslim. He goes, I know nothing about the Muslim faith. 
why don't you tell me a bit about it? And they agreed that over a series of coffees and lunches, they sat down, and this man came, and he brought out his notepad, and he wrote down everything that this man had to say. Why did you become a Muslim? What does it mean to you? What, what, what is it doing for you? How do you pray? All of these things. And when they finally exhausted everything that this man knew about his own faith, the man said, well, I should probably return the favor. So the black man says to the white man, what, what do you believe? And he said, I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And he said, well, I was once a Christian. It didn't go so well for me, so tell me about your faith. And this man went on to explain to him over more coffees and more lunches, it's not about a religion. It's not about a group of white people huddled together in a room. It's not about a bunch of good people who dress up and go into a nice building on Sunday. It's about what Christ has done for all of us. And I just want to challenge you, you know, when you think about your testimony, I want us to think about the, the demoniac that we heard about. See, if I was telling my testimony to this, this man, I could tell it like this. My name is Chad. I grew up in a Christian home, you know, and went to church all the time. And when I was a certain age, I thought, you know, I really need to make a decision for myself. So I became a Christian, and I just kept going to church, and now I keep going to church, and I am a Christian. But that's not what the Bible said happened to me. Those details might be true, but that's not what the Scripture said. According to passages like Colossians and Romans, Jesus Christ rescued me from the dominion of darkness and brought me into the dominion of the Son he loves. Jesus Christ crushed Satan's head under his feet so that he could set me free. The wages of sin is death, and I was under a death penalty, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I just want to challenge you, if you're like me and you think I have this boring Christian testimony where I grew up in church and I just keep on going to church, that is not what the scriptures said happened to you. Jesus came and lived and died and rose again so that you could be rescued from Satan's dominion and brought into the, son, the realm of the son he loves. And that's the message that Sydney needs to hear. Because there's a whole bunch of desperate and dying people who are not looking to go into a Chinese Christian church on Sundays. They are guilty. They are mentally traumatized. They are depressed. They are desperate. And they need to hear that there's someone who has power over the dominion of Satan and the domain of sin. Let's remember to tell people what Christ has done for us. This white Christian ends up telling this black man essentially that very same thing. This is what Christ has done for me. This is what I think Christian faith is all about. It's about being rescued from Satan's realm, and it's about what Christ has done for each of us. And slowly but surely, he led this man back to faith and his entire family with him. And it all began because this man walked across the room. In the same way that one day Jesus left crowds of people on the other side, went over across the sea, met a crazy man, and then crossed back over so that the whole region of the Decapolis could hear about Christ, this man walked across the room so that this other man and his family could find salvation in Jesus Christ. And I just want to challenge you, that's the message of Missions Month. 
Jesus says, go, make disciples of all people. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that I have taught to you because I will be with you in power and authority to the very end of this age. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you sent your son to cross over, that he left the comfort of heaven and the esteem of heaven and the prestige of heaven and lowered himself to come down to this earth to live as a man, and not just a man, but as a servant and a slave, and not just a servant and a slave, but to humble himself even to the point of dying on the cross for the sins that he never committed. Thank you that you made your son who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could be called the righteousness of God. And Lord, now we pray that what we have received freely, that we will give freely, that you will inspire us to cross over seas and to walk across streets and to walk across campuses and offices and to be looking with your eyes to see those unlikely people on whom you would have mercy. And we pray that you will be with us to the end of the age. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.